Hello, I'm John Chambers. I want to welcome everyone to another episode of Chambers Talks. It's a discussion about tech disruption on a global basis, but it's also a discussion about leadership, lessons learned, both things we've done well and areas that we can improve on. I'm talking with my very good friend, Hawk Tan. Uh, we've known each other for over 15 years. We built many, many products together. And I believe he's one of the very top leaders across all of the technology industry. And it goes without saying the semiconductor industry. Uh, Hawk is president and CEO of Broadcom. Uh, before that, president and CEO of Avago. Uh, you've been across three or four other semiconductor companies, Hawk. But what people may not know is that you also worked at Pepsi and General Motors. So you have both sides in terms of the experience and direction. Uh, you're uh, a member of the President's National Security and Tele Telecommunications Advisory Committee since 2018, and uh, you have a, uh, a bachelor's and master's degree in mechanical engineering from MIT and an MBA from Harvard. So you're wicked smart, uh, and uh, uh, it'll be fun today. But what people may not know is 50 years ago, you immigrated from Malaysia, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time on that when we have a chance. But my perspective on Hawk, uh, he's not only a great friend, he's a great global leader, solving world problems, all about innovation and making it happen. It is about transformational growth, Hawk, and you've reinvented yourself and your companies again and again and again. And while you're confident and looking forward, you also realistic of where the challenges go. Uh, you are the example of the American dream. And uh, you are, as I said earlier, a great friend who I trust completely. So, Hawk, thank you for joining us today. John, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. You're a great friend, and thank you for inviting me. It's an honor, actually, to have a chance to sit down and chat with you. So, let's start by all means. All right. Well, I'm going to start with the one topic people may not know about you. Uh, tell us more about your journey, your immigration to the U.S. 50 years ago, and why did you come to the U.S.? And tell me about the process and educate the uh, listeners on how that occurred. Well, that's a long time ago, but my recollection, John, at that time, 50 years ago, and I was just a kid who just, who just came out of high school, pre-university, as they call it, in yes. Malaysia at that time. And... Frankly, it wasn't an immigration. It wasn't intended as an immigration. I was just looking to get a college education and figuring out at that time, where could I get the best college education? And a sense of adventure, like a lot of high school seniors coming out of school, uh, to even today. And I had an opportunity to be a doctor, actually, at that time in Malaysia, going to medical school. Mm -hmm. or And in Malaysia, you can go straight to medical school out of high school. may take you a few more years, but you still get there. Or go into the great unknown, but get, get into a university, which happens to be, in my, in my view, in my view still today, one of the best engin technical engineering schools in the world. Uh, so I took the latter route. I was just looking for edu great education, and that's how I came to America. And it's uh, and the rest was really uh, a sense of opportunity because I came to America from ten thousand miles away, 
sight and unseen. Just took the SAT, fill out the forms, fill out the right form, send it in, and from and lo and behold, I got admission. And I I come from a family that's not well off, so I got the financial wherewithal to come out to the U.S. I can't imagine too many countries in the world, if any other country, who would do that with no strings attached. So I showed up on the shores of the U.S. and enrolled in MIT. And uh, 50 plus years later, here I am. <laughs> That's the American dream. <laughs> it is in many ways, Hawk. I, I, I thought I was adventurous when I went to Duke and uh, it was school I got in and valedictorian of the class said, John, I'm at Duke as well. Do you want a room together? And I said, okay. And that's how I decided to go to Duke. I'd never seen it, but it was 150 miles away. So you, each time we talk, you get me to think much more in terms of what's possible. You are the example of the American dream. Many people are thinking perhaps the American dream isn't an option like it used to be. How do you answer that question for young people or people joining your company? Uh, I Well, to start with, as I think through, and to me, and I think quite a few of my friends and even uh, family, this, this, uh, this, this very altruistic action, as it done, as, uh, and that's still the way I look at it, by private American universities to actually diversify themselves in terms of bringing in students, uh, students, smart students, young ones all over the world to have a chance to have a great education and in so doing, expose themselves and expose the American system to these people two-way street. I think it's something that's still very much alive and it has always been my personal individual view to really feel that this should be something that it should be kept going. So, and so we, to the extent we can, I can, I will give back to the schools and all the schools so they, they, can, they can have the, web, the funds, the financial wherewithal to keep that going. And it's, as it turns out, it's not only great for the schools, it's not just great for the students. I think it's great for the American system in total because, uh, you know, we, we don't have a perfect system, John, in U.S. We have social issues and all that. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's still very much better than lots of other places out there. And it's very, it opens up a lot of opportunities, options, where none exists. So it's still very much alive. It has, in fact, John, my belief, gone somewhat even further. Ties to the fact that if you, you can come to America and get a great education, and if you choose to, which was my intent initially coming to this country over 50 years ago, that I get a great education, enjoy a new environment, you know, which I up to now, up to then, I've only seen on Hollywood movies. We got hello, we got Hollywood movies <laughs> in Malaysia. <then>. Yes. <laughs> so like that's yes. great. Let's do that. And then after a few after a few years of adventure with a great education, move back to Malaysia where you're close to friends and family, and start a serious career. As it turned out, I didn't do the latter part. I stayed in America. But why? Because 
one thing leads to another. It's interesting if the opportunities keep coming out, if you're looking for it and you're willing to try it. And I think a lot of people who come here, a lot of students, young men, young adults who come here for an education, ends up staying. And by so staying, it really increases to a tremendous extent the talent pool within this country. Something that I do not know any other country in the world can replicate. And so that American dream tries very much to this day. You know, it's exciting. Last question on your background and your journey. Um, I think it's a tremendous advantage that you've been in multiple industries, Pepsi, General Motors, semiconductor across multiple companies, because you learn in each one. Do you agree with that? Or was it just there was a, the next promotion was a, a different industry segment? How did you go about that? And and for people you're advising, your thoughts on going across industries in your career? It was really <laughs> rather mundane reasons that started me on that process. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I ended up in General Motors first after business school from Harvard because I met my ex-wife when I was in, in Harvard Business School in Boston. Uh-huh. Then before I graduated, she moved to New York and, you know, I was in love. So I wanted to find a job in New York desperately when I graduated. And I took a job at General Motors Treasurer's Office, uh, whose headquarters is on Fifth Avenue in New York. Well, that's how I ended up in New York. And then I got myself a very good mentor in General Motors at the time. He, he was in the vice president of finance of General Motors. So that's how I ended up in finance. Then he moved to PepsiCo and as the chief financial officer and pulled me along. And that's how I ended up in PepsiCo. But they were all great learning experiences. And uh, that's, that's how I ended up in these diverse industries. But no regrets because it's a great it was a great learning experience in each situation, but more than that, at the end of the day, it basically tells me a lot, which is I'm no technologist, I'll be honest, but I should know how to monetize technology and anything else that comes along. You know, I agree with you on that. Uh, I've always focused, technology is interesting to me, but it's what technology can do and how it can change our lives that makes it exciting. Talking about technology, what new technology are you most excited about? AI, uh, quantum computing, uh, 5G, uh, which one, if you could only could bet on one, would you say will be most exciting for the next decade? I'll tell you the one that really is most, uh, could be, long-term, very fundamentally, very game-changing. Because in silicon technology, as you know, which is what created the the compute uh, functionality, compute capability that we depend on very much today, but we're running out of steam in that space. You know, we we are very creative. We create new architectures to create where we become network, the network of, of uh, compute engines becoming the computer itself. We're literally running our compute capacity. 
So if there's one area that I really like to uh, focus on in the future is quantum computing. The ability to make quantum computing a day-to-day -day reality because that will transform everything else in the, on this planet, in this society tremendously. Huck, when you build products, you have to be three years ahead of your leading edge customers and they have to be two to three years ahead of the market. Out of all the products you built and platforms or foundations, is there one that excites you the most? Would it be back to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and FM, a combo chip for mobile phones? Or what would it be uh, out of all the products you built? That's a that's a hell of a difficult question, John. <laughs> and I, it's like we do which so one of your many things. You like the best, yes. I know. It's like with my favorite child. I know what you're asking, John. And in Broadcom, I have 22 product divisions. Call in my kid, my children. I love them all. Cannot show favorites. But if I had to pick one, has been most interesting and exciting. Basically, it's what I mentioned earlier. We have reached the limits of computing in our data centers, in any functionality we have, we really have reached that limit. Even in generative AI, we could do more with the huge amount of database out there that we could process to create even more impressive, much faster, better generative AI. But to a large extent, is limited at the first instance by the ability to compute and process this data. But what is also coming very apparent is, well, there are ways around it. And one of the most way, uh, simplest ways around it is how do you hook up, connect thousands, even hundreds of thousands in the future of process, uh, and process AI engines? The compute engines, whether it's GPU, TPU, or even CPU, hook them all together to exchange data, to process simultaneously, to act as if it's almost a single super computing engine. And the, so where the constraint is happening now is in the ability to transfer data back and forth between these engines. What I call the switching and routing of packets of data process, uh, workloads between these machines. And that's where a lot of very innovative ideas, moonshots to some extent I call it, is happening right in Broadcom. And we're continuing to invest significantly in this space and the, I don't see an end in sight. It gets exciting because you can begin to say what the next two decades are gonna bring when you open up the capacity that we were running out of out of capabilities with. Um, you and I share a similar view that innovation isn't just about doing it yourself, but innovation is about also partnering and acquiring. You've done all three very well. And you and I talked earlier about how we partnered across multiple companies uh, at Pensando and before that at Cisco and you're a great partner. Um, tell us a little bit about your, and you hit earlier on innovation internally, your view on acquisitions and maybe expand a little bit on why did you pick VMware uh, and what really excited you most about it? Well, John, uh, we, I, we, I have, we have a model, Broadcom has a model 
And that truly hasn't changed for the last 17 years. I've been running broad, uh, Broadcom and before that, Avago Technologies, the predecessor. And yes. it's still the same company, just rebranded very nicely. 17 years. So I've been long doing the same thing for a long time. Haven't changed the model. And the reason is because it seems to work. And more than that, I make my share of mistakes, but I learn a lot. And one of the key things is technology that we I love about technology is it never stands still. You have to keep evolving. Uh, occasionally, you get a chance to disrupt, <clears throat> and that what that's what make life so much worthwhile. But constantly, you evolve, and you never stay still. And that's what we are we realize is <clears throat> evolutionary. And but by so doing. It opens up lots of opportunities. So what we do as a as a model, a business model, is we have a if we have existing businesses, we try to do better with them through partnerships, as you say, John. But all on uh, the other path, we take very effectively, I think, is to to seek out, identify very solid, very good businesses or products or assets out there in technology and we acquire them and when acquire them we focus them and continue to execute and through all this whole thing the key in my view is the raw materials it's not just patterns we have plenty of patterns broadcom has over twenty thousand patterns it's also more important is the people a lot of engineers technologies, who works in the company, and who create the next generation. Patterns are in the past, but the people, the skills, are what create the next generation and the next generation. And for us, that's one, that is the key ingredient to being what we have become, a very global, diversified, and leading-edge technology company in the world. Hawk, you alluded to it that we learn from both our successes and from uh, our setbacks. Uh, are you as a leader more a product of your successes in terms of, of where we go, or are we more a product of our setbacks and how we overcome them? For sure, it's the mistakes I made in, <clears throat> in my whole career. <laughs> Way back. The more mistakes I made, the more actually I really learned. And that's and it's it, it is and that's in many ways that's how I move from building materials to cars to soft drinks all the way now to semiconductors. Uh, you know, along the way, I made so many mistakes, John. I have lost track of them. But the key is not to make mistakes that are too too bad that will blow you up. And secondly, to learn from it. And learning is not that hard because when you make mistakes and you always think hard, what did I do wrong and learn from it? Success, one tends to take it for granted very rather quickly. I would agree. I, I, uh, I, I have learned more from my missteps along the way. I wish I didn't make them, but the point <laughs> that you made, I agree with 100%. 
if you're not taking risks, good business risk, and occasionally making mistakes, you never disrupt. And you've got to disrupt in this world. I'm going to switch again. Uh, Hawk, as you know, I'm dyslexic. And I had people in my life that made a tremendous difference uh, with dyslexia. Mrs. Anderson, a teacher who helped me take what is a real challenge, and it is, and learn how to make it a strength. And I've always been involved with dyslexics around the world. Your passion has always been in giving back in many areas. But in the autism area, uh, you've been very active in the community, et cetera. Can you share a little bit your thoughts on this and a little bit why you have the patient in this area? Of course, John. And John, I would never realize you are dyslexic. Congratulations. You, are, you have definitely overcome it very well. And for that, I, I'm totally impressed. Uh, and on, as, far, as far as autism is concerned, you know, it's, it's, it is a personal thing for me, especially, and, and my family, uh, simply because I've, I have two children uh, who are in the spectrum, is the best way to describe it. And one of them, my second son, is extremely autistic. And he will always, in our view, be in need help through life's journey. And through th then through that, bringing up these children uh, from babies to where they are now today, young adults, um, that's been a very interesting challenge. There's been a constant sense of concern and into the future for how do, you, how do these two ch uh, children live their lives? So we had for years, my family focused on how will they integrate into society? How do you make their, their life better uh, in society? And so we've done, a, we have spent a lot of time focused on neurodiversity, especially, and on how they integrate into society. Then one day I came across an initiative in MIT, my alma mater, that was, do, that was doing, uh, I guess, neuro, uh, neural research into the brains, especially. And they were approaching it from the viewpoint of genetic, genetic engineering, genetic research. So it became, and it was very intriguing. And I have to admit, it was very aspirational because we asked ourselves, what if? Through genetic engineering, you find a cure in yes. our lifetime. And so we pivot from not just uh, trying to create mainstream lives for adults, uh, young adults growing in uh, autistic, young adults in the spectrum, integrating the society to what about let's put focus resources in finding chaos, as opposed to just trying to uh, mitigate the condition. And we've been doing that now for um, close to 10 years. First in MIT, then in Harvard, and in terms of, uh, I call it investing. Investing in research and in investing in trying to find solutions. Uh, it's still a journey. I believe it's a long journey, again, but it's something that to us is so important, we'll never stop doing it. 
we love our kids unconditionally and we want them to just be happy in life given the the talent that they have but the neat thing is hawk you're in a position where you know innovation and with new technology coming so quickly and the ability to do uh analysis at you know many many factors faster than anybody ever thought it's very possible that we will find that cure for autism for various cancers etc uh, the last question I'd like to ask you is, and it's my favorite one. Uh, huh. If if I had one lesson that I wish I'd learned much earlier, uh, and I could tell myself 25 years ago, it would have been that getting a playbook for how you do everything from acquisitions uh, to how you move into new markets to how you do architectures. Uh, I, I wish I'd learned that earlier because I viewed that as process and bureaucracy and slow moving. So that's the one that I would have done differently. Is there something you wish you'd learned 25 or 30 years earlier uh, that you now use uh, uh, in your everyday activities and business? Uh, and could you share it with the audience? Wow, that's a very, very interesting question, John. And I could get very philosophical about it, but I tell you this, I believe Put it bluntly, longevity in a job is really what counts the most. You learn. We all never stop learning. And actually, I find it the longer I am in a job, the more I actually learn. And maybe it's something to do with the job I'm doing, or maybe yes. something to do with the environment. Uh, we are both in, in technology, but I find out I learn more as time progresses. So when so putting us putting myself in the shoes of what you say, what would that what would you be like if you known what you known today, 25, 30 years ago? I'll probably ask say, you know what? Be happy, be focused, because you're going to learn much more as time progresses. You just haven't even begun to understand what you're getting into. You know, Hawk, it's interesting. That's the first time I've had that answer, uh, but I, I agree with it very much. But you have a unique talent. You've learned how to reinvent yourself and constantly learn. And I think that's a great message for uh, the people listening today. I want to thank you personally for the friendship over a decade and a half, uh, for you taking the time. I want to thank the listeners for joining us today. I will ask the listeners to uh, uh, kindly rate and review the Chamber's Talks and if we've earned it, leave us a five star uh, for a listening uh, a platform. Uh, I will talk with all of you in our next episode in the not too distant future. And Hawk, thank you once again for the friendship, uh, learning from you and uh, changing an industry together. John, I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for the privilege of participating in this. Thank you. Thank you.